current moment we're in in the U.S.-China relationship is a very precarious one. The problem is, is that the American vision of the relationship and the Chinese vision are very different. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Over the last two years, so much of our conversation about international relations, the global fight for democracy, and the United States' place in the changing global order have focused on Russia, in large part because of their invasion of Ukraine. But we can't lose sight of the impact that China has had on the world economy, the technology we interact with on a daily basis, and the rising tensions between democracies and authoritarians. We'll examine Leader Xi's rise to power, how the invasion of Crimea changed his perception of the West, and how the relationship between the United States and China has changed over the last decade. We're going to dive into the fundamental disagreements about universal values, what they should be, and whether they exist at all, and how China's Global Civilization Initiative could impact the United States' interests around the globe. Next, we'll turn our attention to a geopolitical hotspot, Taiwan. What's the broader significance of this small island in the U.S.-China relationship? And then finally, we'll zoom out to explore what these shifts in the landscape can mean for the world and the U.S. economy and for you. And we'll look ahead to the key areas of competition and cooperation in the coming years. To help us navigate all of this complex and dynamic territory, I'm thrilled to be joined by Evan Medeiros. Evan holds the Penner Family Chair in Asia Studies at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. He has extensive government experience, including serving on the staff of the National Security Council as director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia, and as a special assistant to the president and senior director for Asia. He has also advised the Treasury Department as a policy advisor on China. He holds a PhD in international relations from the London School of Economics and Political Science and holds an MPhil in international relations from the University of Cambridge as a Fulbright Scholar and an MA in China Studies from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Evan, it is wonderful to be with you. Thank you for joining from so far away and thank you for making the time to be here. Welcome to Politicology. Thanks, Ron. It's really great to be here. I'm excited about today's conversation. I am too, because this is the first deep dive we've done in China with someone of your stature, and I'm really thrilled to bring sort of a masterclass on China to our listeners. So why don't we begin with uh, some personal background and how, how you became interested in China in the first place. Before your illustrious bona fides, what led you into this work? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, story because I came to China studies sort of through the back door. So I was um, a high school student in the mid-1980s during the heat of the Cold War and just became fascinated by arms control. And this was sort of, the, you know, the heyday of arms control, the INF Treaty, the big meeting with Reagan and Gorbachev at Reykjavik and became fascinated by arms control affairs, international security affairs. And that was sort of um, an issue that I felt very passionate about. And when I graduated from college, I got this great fellowship at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace focused on those issues. And what I found was that there was basically very few people, almost nobody, that knew about China and these issues, um, even though China and North Korea were, were rapidly becoming major both arms control and nonproliferation challenges. So I was sort of an international security um, nerd first, and through that found my way to China. And I just found China to be in incredibly complex, uh, a big intellectual challenge, but it also seemed to me there was going to be a need for people who knew about both international security affairs and China. Okay, so when you were working at the National Security Council, uh, then Vice President Biden went to China to meet with Xi Jinping. This was back before she took power uh, as leader. Um, can you talk about that meeting and what it showed about the relationship between the U.S. and, and China at the time? And I, I guess I have another sort of process question here, which is, I've been saying Xi Jinping and the Economist's coverage of, uh, of China uh, included a call out that, no, actually, it's Xi Jinping. Uh, and so I wonder, can you, can you set the record straight here? What is the correct pronunciation we should be using for I name? mean, as, as, as somebody that has spent a lot of time 
uh, in tears studying Chinese. I call him Xi Jinping. Okay. So I'm I'm not sure what the economist is thinking or doing. Okay. Uh, it all depends on, of course, how you romanize a Chinese character, because what we're talking about is how we pronounce a Chinese character. But Xi Jinping is is the right way to go. Okay. Terrific. So Biden's trip really originated in the spring of 2011, because at that point there were starting to be indications that Xi Jinping was going to become the successor to Hu Jintao, that he, after the leadership transition in 2012, he was going to be the top guy. And so we obviously thought, okay, let's get to know Xi Jinping before he becomes the man. And it was normal and natural to put our vice president, Joe Biden, uh, together with their vice president to try and take a measure of him. So it was less about um, negotiating some sort of um, uh, new framework for the U.S.-China relationship or trying to work on very specific issues, the Chinese currency or North Korea or Iran. It was really about building that personal relationship so we could understand what motivates Xi Jinping, what are his priorities, how is he going to carry them out, and importantly, try to get Xi Jinping invested in the U.S.-China relationship as early as possible. Because if there's one lesson that we've learned from the last 40 years of the U.S.-China relationship is that in the Chinese political system, it's totally top-down. That it's such a consequential but also controversial, politically controversial relationship in China that big important things can only get done in China when the top guy, the general secretary, you know, the president of the country says do this. So that was part of the strategy, take the measure of the man, but also get him invested in this relationship because in order to do um, manage complex issues like Taiwan, improve market access, you know, reduce their course of economic behaviors, we knew we were going to have to negotiate with Xi Jinping. And what did you learn about the measure of the man and what stood out to you about this meeting? Well, at the time, uh, we learned about his um, family background, um, his views on the future of China. Uh, They haven't played out exactly as one would have expected from those conversations in August of 2011. Some things connect to his priorities now, some don't. Uh, For example, uh, Xi Jinping, when he talked about the future of China, he was always crystal clear that he thought that the Chinese Communist Party and the leadership of the party was essential to securing China's future as a great power. So for Xi Jinping, um, it was he was CCP through and through. Now, we, we thought that going in, given his background, he's he's what's called a princeling, what the Chinese call a taizadang. Um, you know, his father was a very senior Communist Party official um, who played a central role in the early days of Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening in the 80s. So Xi Jinping was a princeling, and a lot of princelings feel uh, strong personal ties to the party. But it was very clear that Xi Jinping was uh, a party man, so to speak. Uh, The other issue that came out very clearly early on was his views about global history and what they meant for the future of China. Specifically, what I'm talking about is Xi Jinping's preoccupation with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Why did the Soviet Union collapse? In order to ensure that China doesn't suffer a similar fate. And he referenced that. And there had been pretty extensive research in China in the late 2000s, early 2010s on that very issue. There's a very high profile CCTV multi-part, multi-part documentary, that sort of thing. So that was very clear um, from Xi Jinping's comments. The other, the other issue, and I'll end on this, is uh, Xi Jinping's intensive focus on domestic politics and the domestic economy. That in Xi Jinping's first five years, uh, he was going to focus on um, positioning China uh, to be uh, stronger for the future. That was very clear. And we didn't have a sense of how scorched earth the anti-corruption campaign was going to be, but clearly cleaning up the party, improving the party, positioning the party to avoid the mistakes of the Soviet Union and then lead China into the future was very clear from our trip in 2011. I think since you mentioned the anti-corruption initiative, it's probably worth just a quick detour to explain to listeners what that was 
as it sets the background for the rest of uh, the rest of our conversation here and his rise to power, which I want to turn to next. Can you briefly walk us through what the anti-corruption uh, initiative was, why they did it, and uh, and she's role in, in executing it? I mean, she was central to this. Uh, the campaign, as uh, as the name implies, was a political campaign run out of the party, not the government, uh, to basically go after corrupt party officials. Um, the thing about the campaign is it had multiple motives. I mean, one motive very clearly was to clean up the party. I think Xi Jinping recognized that a corrupt party would uh, was probably the greatest threat to the long-term legitimacy of the party and ultimately to political stability. So it was to clean up the party. It was also to get rid of political opponents. I mean, that was very clearly one of his priorities as well. And he uh, got rid of some very, very high profile opponents. I mean, we're talking about one of the top nine people that ran the country at the time. Uh, In other words, a member of the Politburo Standing Committee Uh, He removed uh, a few Politburo members. That's the broader 25 uh, member organization that uh, makes decisions. Uh, He shockingly got rid of two vice chairmen of the Central Military Commission. Think of it as sort of like, you know, the chairman and the vice chairman of the American Joint Chiefs of Staff got rid of them for corruption. Yeah. And, um, And he also... Uh, really cleaned up the Chinese military. To me, that's probably uh, the anti-corruption story that gets less attention, but is far more consequential for the future of China because he recognized that the uh, PLA was basically rotten through and through. People paid for promotions, right? You didn't get to be colonel, general, two-star general without paying for it. And everybody, it was almost as if there was a price list million bucks for this, two million for that, et cetera. So is it also fair- This was scorched earth. Yeah, it it sounds like it. Is it also fair to understand this as as a way for him to purge the party of any threats to his his rise to power? Absolutely, 100%. And there were threats at the time. I mean, there there were people that were already, uh, you know, under investigation- um, you know, in 2012. Uh, and then he started to pick apart their personal networks, both in Beijing and in the provinces. Mm. So it was the way to think about it is three motives run. Number one, clean up the party. Number two, remove political opponents. Number three, remove opponents to his um, a policy agenda. Mm. Okay. So let's talk about his rise then. A couple of years later, uh, following this meeting, uh, she becomes leader. What was the state of the relationship like at that time? And how did his leadership style and his policies change that dynamic? Yeah, to me, this is one of the most important stories to understand in the trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship. Because at, at when Xi Jinping came to power, he became the top leader of the Communist Party in the fall of 2012. Uh, the relationship at the time, I would say, was stable Uh, It had elements of cooperation and it had elements of competition. We were working together on issues like going after the Iranian nuclear weapon program, uh, trying to constrain the North Korean nuclear weapon program. We were pushing the Chinese on different aspects of opening their market, pursuing new dimensions of reform, stopping the Chinese government's intervention to prop up their currency, for example. So to try and create a more level playing field for the U.S.-China economic relationship. So it was sort of a balance a balance of the two. Of course, we remained very um, concerned about the trajectory of the uh, military modernization and their approach toward Taiwan. But because the leader of Taiwan at the time was somebody that the Chinese thought that they could deal with, the Taiwan situation was not nearly as tense now. And the Chinese military wasn't putting as much pressure on Taiwan as they are today. So I would say it was the the relationship was this mix of cooperation and competition. And we were trying to coax um, using a variety of incentives and disincentives 
uh, better behavior from the Chinese, get them to work with us more on global economic, global diplomatic problems, and basically trying to disabuse them from the use of coercive economic uh, and military tactics to solve other problems. So there was still a view that China could be shaped both through changing the strategic environment in Asia, but also by negotiating directly with the Chinese. Okay. So with that as the backdrop for the U.S.-China relationship, I'd like to hear just a few minutes about what the relationship between Xi and other world leaders looked like at the time and how, how were those influencing China's foreign policy? They were very nascent because Xi Jinping had not really had much international exposure when he became um, head of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, he was party secretary of Shanghai, which afforded him some opportunity to meet international leaders and and international uh, CEOs. But I would say he didn't have terribly well-developed views of international politics. And that was clear when we talked with him, uh, both when Biden visited Beijing in the summer of 2011, but then uh, the Obama White House invited Xi Jinping to the United States for a reciprocal visit in February of 2012. So um, we didn't have a strong sense. He didn't articulate any unique view. He didn't, for example, reveal uh, his penchant for risk tolerance, uh, his penchant for uh, economic coercion or military coercion. I mean, there were a couple things he did pretty early on um, deploying this sort of special, what they call air defense identification zone around the Senkaku Islands, which are disputed between Japan and China. Uh, that was seen as very provocative by the Japanese and worried us. There was no indication that he was going to make the South China Sea a priority, like building these seven quasi-military bases. Let's fast forward a little bit to 2014. Um, when we first connected, you and I, you talked about how the invasion of Crimea shaped Xi's perception of the West, especially around Taiwan. So can you put that in context for us? Talk about how Putin used it to influence Xi and how, how did it change the way China made strategic decisions? In 2014, the Chinese response to the Russian seizure of Crimea and their invasion of Ukraine with these sort of little green men was very tentative and very careful. I think the Chinese, uh, Xi Jinping at the time, did not have a close relationship with Putin. Um, I think the Chinese were very wary of getting in the middle of this. Um, And even though Russia had very blatantly violated the sovereignty of another country, Ukraine, which is one of the most sacrosanct principles in Chinese foreign policy, promoting and protecting territorial integrity and sovereignty. The Chinese just sort of elided over that obvious contradiction um, and did their best to sort of try and stay neutral. But that started fading away over time as I think the Chinese became uncomfortable with the growing uh, international sanctions on Russia. Um, I think it changed over time as Putin very carefully, but very deliberately and ultimately strategically used uh, that situation to build a closer personal relationship with Putin. Um, We also know now from some very excellent research, there's a wonderful professor at American University that's done some research on Xi Jinping's family background. Xi Jinping's father was Mao Zedong's top guy for managing the uh, Sino-Soviet relationship, which was an alliance in the 1950s. So Xi Jinping, we we now know, was exposed to Russian literature, Russian technology. So he was sort of very open to building that relationship. But I think Putin saw that he had an opportunity and perhaps a willing candidate in Xi Jinping to build this common view of the United States and frankly, the West uh, as the biggest threat to both domestic stability and external stability. And the fact that Russia was under all of these sanctions after the seizure of Crimea, and that created huge economic opportunities for the Chinese, right? They could get oil and gas on a cheaper basis. They could get access to better, more advanced military technologies. 
Um, and they had all these um, investment opportunities in Russia, which Putin and his guys gave to Xi Jinping and other top leaders and to their families. So that was really an opening for Putin to build this relationship and seed into Xi Jinping the belief that that the United States, the West, presented this long-term uh, strategic threat to China's domestic stability and China's external security. So while we're on the topic of Ukraine just for a moment, um, which we have talked about extensively on the show, um, but, but less so about China, I'm curious how you would characterize the relationship between um Russia and China, but more importantly, Putin and Xi now. Um, how do you see that relationship? You know, we've talked about how it originated, but um, how do you see it sitting now with the conflict conflict in, in Ukraine? I think it's fair to say today that it's a de facto alliance. It's effectively strategic alignment without an alliance in the sense of having a mutual defense commitment. Right? I mean, China is basically provided diplomatic cover economic assistance, even military assistance, just not lethal military assistance. But every day I open up the newspaper, it looks like there's a new report that the Chinese are slicing the slami between providing military assistance and lethal military assistance. So I, I, I see them as very closely aligned. And it's really a function of the fact that the personal relationship between Xi Jinping and Putin is so close, right? Xi Jinping a few years ago called him as Zweihao the Jirshim Pangyo, which in Chinese means sort of like my best friend from the bottom of my heart. And so I think that that there's a substantial alignment in their material interests, but I also think that there's common values at the heart of this, which is opposing Western imperialism, impose opposing democratic capitalism as the sort of model for how countries should organize themselves. So this is really a contest of um, both security interests and values and and ultimately worldviews that is lubricated by this personal relationship between the two. Okay. This is a perfect segue to one of the main questions I wanted to ask you which is the the idea of universal values. So the more I've been looking at China and trying to understand U.S.-China relations more deeply and what domestic politics looks like in China, the more clear it is to me that there isn't just a lack of universal values, but that there is an unequivocal rejection that universal values exist at all, can exist. Can you elaborate on how China sees the idea of universal values and how that informs their actions from power conflicts to human rights? I mean, simply put, Ron, I mean, they don't believe that there are universal values. Their view is what America calls universal values are just Western values. We try to have different values and our values are not political rights. They're developmental rights. And that's the core of China's uh, sort of um, values-based agenda externally, their view is we prioritize developmental rights, not political rights. And what you call political rights are really just Western values that you're trying to impose on other countries. You know, Western values being democratic capitalism is really the only way to modernize. And what about human rights? I mean, what's interesting is the Chinese have signed up to the UN's Universal Declaration on Human Rights. There are human rights in the Chinese constitution, but they clearly don't respect that because they don't believe in free, fair, and open elections. They don't believe in fundamental First Amendment rights, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, etc. Um, so their view is... Um, you know, it's rich countries that can talk about these rights, um, and they're trying to impose these Western values on others. Um, you may recall that when the Biden administration convened the democracy, the global democracy summit, uh, both the Chinese ambassador in Washington and the Russian ambassador in Washington jointly published an op-ed in the Washington Post talking about what they called whole process democracy, which was the ways in which the Russian political system and the Chinese political system actually deliver public goods better, more efficiently 
than democracies do, often pointing out all the problems associated with democracies. So there are just fundamental differences about politics and how to organize society um, for, uh, for political ends. So if China doesn't believe that universal values exist at all, why ratify the, the UN's declaration? Um, what, what sense does that make for them? It seems like a contradiction to me. And, and also, we should probably touch on the Uyghurs as well and, and how you see that uh, situation in China. In Chinese foreign policy is riddled with contradictions, right? They talk about trying to prov- promote a, a view of the world that is focused on uh, economic freedom, opportunity, choice for countries, right? I mean, ending hegemonism and power politics, promoting democratization of international affairs. But when you look at Chinese foreign policy, I mean, it's, um, you know, very focused on sort of uh, realpolitik, uh, the stronger um, do what they will, the weaker suffer what they must. I mean, it's, it's an approach to foreign policy very much rooted in, in power politics. Maybe we should um, uh, just briefly define the term realpolitik. I'm familiar, but maybe our listeners won't be. Can you explain what the, essentially the worldview that is uh, political realism, essentially? I mean, realpolitik is the worldview that states should be governed by their material interests, what serves their security, what serves their economy um, and values and human rights and promoting those uh, are far less important. So we see this play out sometimes in the tension between American interests and American values, which we've talked about uh, before. There's an inherent Absolutely. tension between between values and a, and a more realpolitik way of viewing um, uh, viewing foreign policy. I mean, that is perhaps the most enduring story in the history of American foreign policy, how to balance these two. Okay, let's talk about the Global Civilization Initiative. Um, what is it? What is its significance uh, in China's vision for global governance? What would it mean for universal values globally? The Global Civilization Initiative uh, was announced in March of this year. It's part of a sort of three-part set of initiatives that Xi Jinping announced beginning in 2021 uh, that collectively are meant to be the Chinese view of global governance. There's the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, and now the Global Civilization Initiative, which is basically China's view on how to pursue modernization. Their view is that uh, too often modernization is treated as equivalent to Westernization, and that Westernization uh, is too focused on democratic capitalism as the sole, exclusive, most effective model for achieving modernization. The Chinese view is that's not true, Mm. right? You can achieve modernization without adhering to the model of or building the model of democratic capitalism. And so the Chinese Civilization Initiative is trying to promote a more sort of inclusive view um, that prioritizes developmental rights uh, over political rights. How are they going about executing this, first of all? And what would it mean for, um, for democratic values around the globe if they're successful? How could that change um, the, the, the global order? So this is a very important question because how China pursues the global civilization initiative, I think will be central to how China relates with much of the world, not just America, but American allies and partners in Europe, but also in Asia, right? There are big advanced democracies in Asia, Australia, Japan, South Korea, that sort of share this vision. So it's not really Western per se, because there's a bunch of countries in the East who, who you know, share these American values. So how China pursues this is a big open question. It's not entirely clear. The Chinese document laying out the Global Civilization Initiative does not really provide many details. My take is that the Chinese are using the Global Civilization Initiative as sort of a framework to justify what they're already doing, which is deal with any government all over the world that serves their interests, right? We will deal with Cuba. We will deal with Venezuela. We will deal with Saudi Arabia. Political type doesn't matter. We're gonna, we're going to trade with them. We're gonna invest with them. Uh, we're going to engage in military cooperation with them. 
regardless of regime type. Okay, so this is probably really important for how Xi Jinping views Taiwan, I would imagine, um, which we should talk about. Does he see it as an opportunity for armed conflict or as a problem to be managed through other means? How does that fit into this global civilization initiative? Ron, your question is exactly right, that framing. And so I, as of today, but it could change, I believe Xi Jinping looks at Taiwan and says it is a problem and a challenge to be managed, not an opportunity to be seized. But I think Chinese anxiety about the future of Taiwan is growing. Chinese anxiety that the window of opportunity to shape the future of Taiwan, to deter them from becoming independent, may be closing because of trends in Taiwan, trends in U.S. policy. And if the Chinese come to that conclusion that their that their time and their chance to shape the trajectory of Taiwan is closing, I think then uh, Xi Jinping uh, begins to look at uh, military and economic coercion as more palatable options. So how do things currently stand uh, with Taiwan? It seems like tensions have been escalating. More recently, there have been visits from high-ranking U.S. officials. Um, How do you see the potential implications for regional stability, U.S. interests, and especially as domestic politics heats up in the United States, we head into 2024, um, what is that going to do to the U.S.-China relationship specifically around Taiwan? Taiwan is absolutely a hot spot today. Taiwan faces a very grim reality of constant Chinese information operations toward the Taiwan public to try and persuade them that they have no option but to reunify with the mainland. They can't count on America. They can't count on American allies. Uh, The Chinese military has established a new normal of persistent and consistent operations in the air and on the sea around Taiwan, which is important because it stresses the Taiwan military, which is a a much smaller military than mainland China, um, and which means that it diminishes the Taiwan's military's ability to be prepared for a conflict. So it's a very, very tense situation with the Chinese putting a lot of uh, pressure on Taiwan. Uh, As you rightly pointed out, politics in the United States are heating up. Taiwan clearly is becoming even more politicized. It's always been politicized, uh, but even more politicized in the United States. And there are members of Congress who use travel to Taiwan to sort of demonstrate both their anti-China credentials, um, but also to demonstrate that they're strong on national security as well. The Taiwan lobby in the Congress has grown. Um, But at the same time, Uh, U.S. policymakers, both in the executive and in the legislature, I think rightly recognize Taiwan faces a very, very serious security challenge. And they're allocating more money for Taiwan to buy weapons, which is an important thing. The U.S. is upgrading its force posture. and, In other words, the type of military equipment, um, presence around Taiwan uh, in order to deter mainland China. The challenge with all of this is nobody knows where the line is between deterring and provoking, right? And as the U.S. does more with Taiwan, as the U.S. increases its military presence in East Asia, nobody knows exactly what is enough to deter mainland China, but what is uh, so much that it may trigger an accident or a strategic miscalculation on the part of Beijing. So a very tense, very difficult situation. I mean, let me just finish off by saying, I don't believe war is, uh, it's not imminent and it's not inevitable, um, but it's a very, very challenging situation. I, I have to imagine the challenge of the situation has a lot to do with, as you just described, the ambiguity between offense and defense. One country's defense might be perceived as the other country's offense. That's exactly right. And we saw Joe Biden recently uh, answer a question. I think he's answered it more than once now in the same way. If we are 
forced to defend Taiwan, you know, if if China makes uh, an attempt at reunification, will we will we come to def- to Taiwan's defense? And he has said yes, pretty unequivocally. Um, four times. Four times now. Four yeah. times the president. Right. So one of the pillars of U.S. policy toward China and Taiwan for decades has been what's called strategic ambiguity. America has been ambiguous about the conditions under which it would come to Taiwan's defense. The purpose of that policy is to deter both mainland China from provocative actions toward Taiwan, but also deter Taiwan's political leaders from moving toward independence to provoke a conflict. Uh, Joe Biden's effort to reduce some of that strategic ambiguity, I think, was quite wise because there was growing concern after the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, that there might be some questioning on the part of Beijing whether the U.S. had either the capability or resolve or both to take action to to defend Taiwan. And so what's interesting is the Biden team has not removed strategic ambiguity 100 percent. Biden has sought to remove some of the ambiguity to improve the quality of deterrence. While we're on Taiwan, I think it's also worth recognizing that, at least to me, this seems like one area where uh, the traditional, the tension that we've described between um, American interests and American values actually align uh, on Taiwan, because it isn't only uh, an important democratic ally in Asia, but we also rely on them for semiconductors, for chips, um, which we're now trying to redomesticate into the United States, but they're still an important manufacturer of the um, electrification of our economy. Um, so can you talk a little bit about U.S. interest as it relates to Taiwan? Um, because I think the values question is pretty clear, but talk about the strategic importance of Taiwan to U.S. national security interest and economic interest. It's interesting because the debate in the United States about Taiwan um, has consistently been more focused on security interests and strategic interests than on values. You know, Taiwan didn't become a democracy until the mid-1990s. So it's interesting because the first 15 years of this issue was a non-democratic Taiwan. So democratic values weren't on the table. But clearly, Taiwan is a very vibrant and successful democracy, and we want to protect that. And I I do believe that that is an enduring interest for the United States. On the strategic side or the security side, it's really about the credibility of American commitments in the Asia Pacific. The argument has long been made that if the United States let China take Taiwan, then American allies in Asia, Japan, Korea, Australia, the Philippines, would call into question the credibility of American commitments to them. Now, to be clear, Taiwan is not an ally of the United States. Taiwan does not have a mutual defense treaty with the United States like Japan, Korea, Australia, and the Philippines. Nonetheless, the belief uh, which I have long held to was that Chinese aggression against Taiwan, if it went unanswered, could initiate a chain reaction that ultimately led to the uh, dissolution uh, or at least the substantial weakening of the network of American security commitments throughout the Asia Pacific. So that's really what's been at the heart of American security interests toward Taiwan. It's been less about semiconductors and TSMC. I want to turn now to what all of this could mean for the U.S. going forward. When we spoke a while back, you mentioned that China is different from the USSR in that they don't think they need to tear down the United States in order to survive. But um, China's ideal world would diminish the standing of the U.S. And there's this question of whether or not there's a fundamental incompatibility between the worldviews of the United States and China and what happens when those incompatible worldviews um, meet and where are we headed? Now, the, uh, first, I'd love for you to address the question of that compatibility. And then uh, if, that's, if that's not the way you see it, then what does the future of this collision course we seem to be on look like? I mean, that's a great question. I think it's one of the fundamental questions at the heart of the U.S.-China relationship. I would say it's very much an open question about whether or not 
the U.S. worldview and the Chinese worldview um, can become compatible over time. Um, as you rightly pointed out, during the Cold War, but the Soviet Union and the United States defined their worldviews as existentially incompatible. That's why the United States saw the Soviet Union as an existential threat. Now, of course, nuclear weapons were part of the picture as well. I think with the U.S.-China relationship is very much an open question. And to me, uh, China's worldview is still evolving. So I think it's too early uh, to say whether or not both sides are going to be able to find a geopolitical modus vivendi, a set of ideas that will allow coexistence amid competition. Um, when I look at this trifecta that I talked about before, China's uh, vision of global governance, the Global Security Initiative, the Global Development Initiative, Global Civilization Initiative, what I see is the Chinese groping for sets of ideas to contrast themselves with what you know we in the U.S. like to call the rules-based order or the liberal international order. And if the Chinese keep really pushing this, and uh, take consistent efforts to really tear down the rules-based order, then I think the compatibility between our worldviews becomes increasingly in detention. But this is very much an active issue, and it's one I'm looking at very carefully, because to make an obvious point, there is huge structural interdependence between the United States and China, right? Economically, but not just economically technologically, environmentally, on issues like climate change. And then, of course, the fact that we both have large nuclear arsenals sort of makes us bound by a sort of mutually assured destruction type of logic. So there's a lot of interdependence and interconnectedness, whether we like it or not. That is a strategic reality we simply have to accept. And so the question becomes, you know, does that interdependence um create conditions that allow us to find a basis for coexistence or do we continue to diverge in very worrisome ways yes this is a this is a perfect segue uh, because one of the things i wanted to ask you is about that economic interdependence because the the strategy uh, of the, uh, the united states strategy toward china for so long has been uh, trade with china and over time, that will change their worldview. I'm, that's a very crude characterization. Feel free to um, embellish and, and, and help us with that. But yeah, a little from, bit more complicated. A, than a that. lot more complicated. But 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 essentially, if if we are to engage with them economically, then over time, that will allow for both countries to um, uh, to essentially stay at peace. That um, strategy has been discussed recently by lots of experts all over the place as having been absolutely a failure now. And, uh, and that now we're in this process of trying to separate ourselves from our economic interdependence with China. So I wonder how you see that, uh, that strategy, whether you agree or disagree that it has been a failure, um, and how that shapes the bilateral relationship, um, going forward. What does the economic, uh, interdependence do going from here? So I think that this debate about U.S. policy toward China is engagement a, a failure. I think um, you know suffers from some real weaknesses because uh, I I don't think that the U.S. expectation was that China would become a Jeffersonian democracy. Um, I don't think that the expectation was that China would become a docile great power that fully agreed with the American worldview. Right. I do believe that there was a hope that economic wealth in China, as China became richer, as China became more connected with the international world, that it would become uh, more politically open and that it internationally would become more socialized to the value to China of a rules based system. Right. As opposed to a, uh, you know, international order that. Um, you know, is based on survival of the fittest, right? The strongest person wins. And what happened was, is that those strategies, which were adopted beginning in normalization in 1979, yielded important benefits for America, for much of the world, 
uh, but they reach their limits. Um, and they reach their limits because as China, I think, um, became stronger, uh, it started to bristle at the constraints. I think Chinese politics became increasingly concerned about their openness to the West. And that's why under Xi Jinping's predecessor, Hu Jintao, even he started to clamp down on civil society because of concerns of Western influence, concerns that China would be subject to a color re revolution, right? The Chinese looked at the Arab Spring and it made them really, really nervous. So those strategies uh, had value, but they reached their limits and they needed to be adjusted. Um, but I think that the idea that they were sort of a fool's errand from the beginning, I think is a, a real misreading of the history of international politics and the history of the U.S.-China relationship. Okay, so um, in that case, what are the key areas of cooperation and competition between the U.S. and China in the coming years? And how can these areas be effectively managed to avoid escalation um, and, and, promote, and promote stability? I mean, that's the million dollar question, Ron, right? And if I knew the answer to that, you know, maybe I would be the national security uh -huh. advisor. What I would say is that um, competition now dramatically exceeds cooperation in the relationship. The competition is very much broad spectrum. It's qualitatively different than it was 10 years ago. We compete on both economic and security issues, as we've talked about today. But those areas of competition are more intense uh, than before, especially the Taiwan issue. And we also compete on questions of technology, right? Who is going to dominate technology's key to the future, semiconductors and AI. And increasingly, we compete on what I call, like to call ideas or some people call ideology. And by ideas, I mean governance ideas. What ideas should govern domestic governance and what ideas should inform global governance? Uh, as we've talked about, Chinese values and American values about how to organize your so society are very, very different, right? They believe in a strong state that dictates everything with very, very minimal liberties, uh, civil liberties and human rights, basic human rights for people. Um, and the U.S. just has different views. And so that's that competition is now broad spectrum. It's in those four categories, security, economics, technology, and governance ideas. Um, and the problem is, is as those differences become more stark, both sides are now adopting much more competitive strategies than ever before, which has led to this sort of action reaction cycle of a deteriorating relationship. And that's sort of, that's why a lot of people talk about the U.S.-China relationship as a new Cold War. And I understand that that analogy is fraud and there's lots of differences but the reality is, is if the Cold War is a, uh, you know, is a type, it's a genus as opposed to a species, I think there's no question the U.S.-China relationship is a Cold War. Now, it won't be the Cold War, right? It won't be the U.S.-Soviet experience, but frankly, it's probably going to be. It already is way more challenging because China is simply much more, a much more capable adversary than the Soviet Union ever was. And China has a lot more, you know, influence. Um, just to go back to the Ukraine question for a second, because I know it's, it's an issue near and dear to your heart. I mean, the Chinese have very effectively used the ambivalence of the global South, of middle powers in the global South in particular, to burnish their vision of global order, right? To talk about a non-Western version of modernization. And to basically promote this image that it was really United States and NATO that provoked Russia. Russia didn't have any choice, right? And there's a lot of sympathy for that uh, view uh, in the global South, South Africa, Brazil, more broadly in Latin America, in Africa, you know, uh, and elsewhere. And I think that, that, that um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in many ways, like the Korean War in the 1950s, has served as an accelerant on the differences and the differing worldviews um, between the United States and China. It's just made the, the broad spectrum competition that I talked about even more stark and has sort of brought these forward 
because it has accelerated the conversation internationally about these different views about both domestic governance and global governance. Yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm curious about something on the AI front, which I am now watching extremely closely. Um, and I think that we haven't even begun to use our imaginations, uh, uh, on, just how profound this technology is going to transform society, transform the world. And one of the claims that's been made um, around AI vis-a-vis China is that if we were to slow down, there have been calls to slow down AI development and experimentation uh, or a pause so that we can do it right, quote unquote, um, is that China would essentially fill fill the vacuum if we were to do that. But others have said, no, no, in fact, what China is doing is fast following all of the development that we're doing in the United States. So I wonder how you see uh, this, that the AI question as it relates to China security, data privacy um, broadly uh, over the last several months. I mean, I'm profoundly worried about it. I'm no technology expert. And what I don't know is the extent to which the Chinese will be able to leverage their massive pool of data and their computing power to make advances in AI. Right. Uh, In language recognition and facial recognition, they've already made very substantial advances. I don't have the technical background to make that judgment. But what I would say is they've already demonstrated a very clear track record of using the advances of AI for illiberal purposes. Right. And they're this um, the way in which they use technology to repress the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, I think, is a very, very worrisome example. And I wish there had there there's been more attention on this particular issue because whether China leads in AI or not, I can't give you a definitive conclusion. But what's pretty clear to me is they will leverage it for purposes that we should be very, very worried about. Let's say the Chinese make certain technological advances that uh, help their internal security services and then start exporting it to their partners in the Global Civilization oh. Initiative. Yeah. Right? There, there's already a whole discussion of what's called digital authoritarianism, right? The, the, the idea that the Chinese are using technology, sharing technologies uh, to facilitate repression in other countries. And, you know, that may just be, that may be tracking of cell phones, that sort of thing. But if, if the Chinese start sharing much more advanced AI applications for that purposes, then suddenly um, the political competition between the United States and China uh, begins to look much more existential. Yeah. And that we're not there yet, but it's a, a future that we need to be very, very mindful of. Yeah. And if I could just zoom out for a moment, as you were talking, I started thinking about the way uh, Israel has been selling Pegasus to unsavory characters on the global stage. And then zooming out even further, I am now seeing this as a, a, a giant question mark. What is the free world's answer to the rise in tools and technologies that are going to empower authoritarians around the globe? What is our answer to that? Especially as, as these tools, uh, for example, if they were developed by China, um, are made available exclusively to people who align with the way China sees the world. Um, I don't expect an answer. I'm just sort of thinking out loud about the way, you know, the the potential for uh, human rights abuses and uh, and the weaponization of surveillance data, which we know China is already doing and has been doing for some time. What it looks, what the world looks like as 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 the developing world adopts and and buys these tools. Ron, you're right. I can't give you an answer. It's a great question. But I can give you one answer from my experience um, in the U.S.-China context, which is demonstrating consistently that democracy works. There's nothing more important in this sort of long-term competition between models of domestic governance. And I can tell you from talking with Chinese friends who suffered under Xi Jinping's zero COVID strategy, right? Where his approach to managing COVID was not 
importing modern vaccines and inoculating people. It was massive testing, massive quarantines, massive crackdowns that created an awful quality of life, right? The fact that they didn't have a democratic system where they could communicate um, their opposition to that, I think, um, you know, is, is something. So when, whether it's Chinese people or people around the world uh, see that democracy works, that having a responsive, resilient political system that solves problems for its people delivers a good quality of life. I think that um, there's nothing more important than that uh, in this competition of ideas. That's such a great point. Yeah. Um, well, just a quick question on the um, on the debt issue. How um, I believe I'm right about this, that China has recently signaled that they're going to stop or have stopped uh, buying U.S. treasuries. How important is that decision? And how do you see the, um, the cooperation between the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, South Africa, and you might even put Saudi Arabia in that bucket? Um, but, but increasingly, China is playing a, an important role there um, in this, uh, whether it's saber-rattling saber or whether it's quite serious, um, their attempt to move the world away from a dollar standard or at least to diminish the importance, the significance of U.S. dollar as a, the reserve currency and U.S. treasuries as the reserve asset. It's a big, important question that's going to be central to the future of the global economy. To begin by creating a factual baseline, I'm not aware that the Chinese have said they're going to stop buying U.S. treasuries. Um, the Chinese continue to buy U.S. treasuries. They just buy a lot less. Ah. Um, the Chinese just buy a lot fewer than before because they um, are worried about being overly exposed to the value of the dollar and over overly exposed to the value of the currency. Right. One of the things that the Chinese bristle at is the exorbitant privilege associated with the dollar as the global reserve currency, right? And so they have a long-term strategy to reduce their exposure to the dollar, but also to reduce the uh, importance of the dollar globally by increasing the relevance of their own currency, the renminbi. Uh, the problem is because of the way the Chinese economy is structured and because of the way the value of the renminbi is so heavily regulated, their capital account is effectively closed or highly, highly managed. What that means is that um, for most central banks around the world, uh, holding renminbi is not really that useful for you. So the Chinese, um, so the renminbi as a percentage of global reserves is probably about 2% today, somewhere between two or three. The dollar as a percentage of global reserves is about between 50 and 60%. So the Chinese to put it differently, America has massive market share. The Chinese have very, very tiny market share. The U.S. shouldn't be complacent. Uh, we need to improve the regulation of our financial services sector, remove the sources of systemic risk. Uh, of course, we need to grow more You know, to make our economy um, a more desirable uh, investment destination, but also um, to, but also to reassure people that our currency continues to be as valuable as it always has. And so this sort of debate uh, between the renminbi and the dollar, I think, is going to be part of the broader contest between American geopolitical influence and Chinese geopolitical influence. Yeah, there's one there's one vignette that stands out, and I wonder if you have any read on how China viewed this. But um, last year, for the first time, for the first time ever, um, the United States went a little bit further in uh, in a in a sanction uh, action, which essentially seized all of Russia's foreign reserve assets, um, all all of its dollar based assets, That's right. which we had never done before. And one of the things which we've spoken about recently uh, on the show, specifically about money, is how central trust is in it. And a lot of people have argued that that event. Um, gave the adversaries of the United States uh, a bit of ammunition to say, "Well, look, here's one of your here's one of your main risks in holding U.S. dollars: 
they are now, they, the United States, are now showing that they're willing to weaponize this, uh, this tool um, if they don't like what you're doing, essentially. And so I wonder, and we know how Russia saw that. I wonder what Xi Jinping might have been thinking, how China might have read that, um, uh, that event and whether that gave them increased, uh, you know, increased cause to de-dollarize or to work on de-dollarizing. I mean, the Chinese have been working on de-dollarizing basically since the global financial crisis. They felt that they were excessively exposed. I think the um, U.S., the Western sanctions on Russia just accelerated that agenda. It gave Chinese policymakers and Chinese bankers uh, even more reason to want to reduce their exposure to the dollar. And I'm sure that the, the sanctions on the Russian central bank probably led the Chinese to uh, reduce even further their exposure to dollars. I mean, I've heard from some friends that the Chinese have been huge buyers of gold in recent weeks and months, um, you know, uh, to try and replace one reserve currency with another safe haven currency. And I think that's one of the reasons gold's value has gone up so much um, is because in some ways it's seen as a replacement for holding dollar denominated assets. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Um, Evan, before we close, I just uh, am curious what I haven't asked you that maybe I should have and what maybe you see as some of the most critical factors or developments to watch um, in U.S.-China relationship and on what timeline, if there is one. Anything we haven't touched on that's really important to mention? Well, I think the current moment we're in uh, in the U.S.-China relationship is a very uh, important one, and it's a very precarious one, because um, the Chinese bristle at the fact that we call the relationship a strategic competition, though, of course, they understand exactly what we're talking about. The problem is, is that our vision of the relationship, the American vision of the relationship, and the Chinese vision are very different. And simply put, the American vision of the relationship is we want to talk to you, but at the same time that we talk to you, we're going to continue competitive actions, military deployments, uh, export controls, investment bans, et cetera. We want to do both at the same time, right? And we want to be able to compartmentalize the two, right? In essence, we want to uh, create a sort of stable Cold War-like situation. The Chinese view is um, we're not interested in that. Uh, sure, we want more stable relations, we will, but we want you, the United States, to back the hell off or back the heck off uh, this continual drumbeat of competitive actions against us. And I think one of the reasons why in recent weeks there's been an uptick in Chinese provocations, this um, very dangerous naval maneuver against an American Navy ship transiting the Taiwan Strait, for example, which, which happened last week. Um, I think that this is happening because the two sides have not been able to figure out what the basis of the relationship is going to be going forward. They both want stability, but they want it for very different reasons. And um, what I'm worried about is we're not going to be able to find a way to reconcile these two divisions and we will get locked in an action-reaction cycle that simply escalates. Now, the silver lining to all of this is the Chinese economy is facing some real challenges uh, over the long term. They, they're facing challenges even today. Big drivers of growth um, are contracting, and the new drivers of growth don't seem to be generating the impulse that the Chinese expected. So perhaps that could be a caution-inducing uh, motivation on the part of the Chinese. But I think the U.S.-China relationship today, literally in the next few months, is going to be um, very instrumental to, or the U.S.-China relationship, U.S.-China interactions in the next several months, mm. this summer, in fact, I think could determine whether or not we put ourselves on a long-term trajectory to stability um, or uh, more uh, tension and perhaps confrontation. And I think that your point about demonstrating continuously, tirelessly, that democracy works is one of the most important things that we can do. I, I just I just think that's worth underscoring. So thank you for making that point. During the negotiations between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy about the um, debt limit deal, 
I mean, this was just catnip for the Chinese media. You know, for them, they said, look, this just proves democracy doesn't work. They can't, they can't even, you know, they can't even agree on a budget or a debt limit, you know. So, of course, I was, as an American, I'm very glad that a deal was reached. But it's, you know, and I think it does demonstrate that democracy works, right? A deal was reached. It was reached in a timely way. And hopefully it provides a, a sound fiscal basis for the growth of our economy. But I think we have to be very, very mindful that when political motivations start exceeding national interest calculations, that our adversaries in non-democracies um, use this to their long-term advantage. Yeah. Okay. This has been a wonderful, uh, insightful conversation. I I appreciate it. There's so much more that I'd love to get to maybe uh, in the future, Evan. But for now, before we let you go, where should everybody follow your work? Do you want to be found on the internet? <laughs> you can follow my work on LinkedIn. I post my op-eds, um, my uh, uh, broader academic work, and my commentary on international affairs on my LinkedIn page. Okay, terrific. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Evan, until next time, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Ron. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.